Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that he was willing to come here and be our sacrifice for our sins, dying on the cross. And, And we thank you that you did raise him from the dead on the third day. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your word in writing. And we thank you, Father, that you've given us all the gifts in our lives, especially the spiritual gifts that are given to every member of the body of Christ. We thank you, Father, for what you've done for us the moment we believe in your Son, that you've adopted us as your children, you've placed us in union with Christ, and you've also put the Spirit in our hearts. So, Father, this morning we rejoice in who you are and what you've done. We rejoice in your Son. And we would ask today, Father, as every day, that you would guide and direct everything that's going on here and that the Holy Spirit would motivate and inspire us according to the Word of God. We thank you for this, and we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, as this is the first Sunday of the month, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of service today. I mentioned this last week, but we have a new mailing address, and uh, it's on the board again this morning in case you need to send anything and... uh, and you might, it's 3907 North Federal Highway, Suite 223, Pompano Beach, Florida, 33064. Now, I said last week it's on the board and you can read. Then I realized that there's some people that just listen to the message afterwards and they don't look at it. They just do it the old-fashioned MP3 way. So um, this week I'm reading it as well so everybody can see it. And uh, we're going to be needing it because uh, update this morning... On our sale of our building, um, finally, our buyers have received their approvals from, yeah, from uh, the city of Pompano. Um, but the other part of that is that they've, we've scheduled the closing for Monday, June 14th, which is a week, a week and a day from now. So um, because of that, um, our last service will be next Sunday, here anyway. It won't be our last service ever, but the last one here is next Sunday. June 13th. Now, please note that. Um, after that, for the time being, our services will all be online um, until we get another facility, which we've been working at, and it's been difficult. I don't want to give you all the gory details, but well, maybe I will at some point. But in any event, all our services, that includes Sundays as well as Thursdays, will be online, Skype. If, you're, if you don't have a Skype account um, or you want to find out how to connect to us, um, every Thursday, this Thursday there'll be no exception, on our website, there's a post that tells you exactly how to do that. Or you can also email us, and we'll make sure, Mark will make sure that um, you get the information that you need, because it's obviously more important than ever, because we're having our Sunday service as well. And we'll do that until we get um, into our new place. Um, and as I mentioned, we have not yet found that suitable place. Um, I say suitable because we have different needs, you know, we, we, a certain, we need it to be a certain footprint, meaning that it, you have to be able to put the, the uh, chairs in there, and uh, sort of like we have this now, um, a lot of places we've been looking at are kind of broken up, or they're just the wrong shape, and stuff like that. Um, also, I didn't realize this, but there's a lot of retail space where you can't have a church, and the reason is, it's got nothing to do with persecution, all right, it just has to do with the fact that their covenants with their Anchor tenants, you know, the big guys, like the, um, they, they, they agree that the no parking 
the churches would take up too much parking and therefore they don't want them there. So anyway, that's just, so we're struggling with that a little bit. Apologize that we haven't gotten something yet. But uh, if you know of anything that's suitable for us, if you see it or it's in your, you know, whatever you do, you have a friend that's in the re- real estate business or whatever, let us know. And uh, the way you can let us know is to send an email to info, I-N-F-O, at lbible.org. Again, info at lbible.org. You can always use this for anything, but right now, one of the things, if you've got uh, a suggestion for where we might be able to relocate, send us an email to that address, and we will appreciate it. Not guaranteeing that we'll move there, but at least it'll give us more options. Right now, we have only a few. Um, All right, so now the good news about this is that after the closing on the 14th, we'll have another month just to move out, which is good. You know, we need it. But that means that we don't have, we, because it isn't our building anymore, we can't have services. Does that make sense? But we can, they've given us a month to move out, which is very, very kind, and we, we will probably need it. We'll also need some help packing um, for those who might be able to. We'll, we'll have more information about when that day or days will be where we could really use a hand. We don't have an huge amount of stuff, but for example, the chairs that we have here, you know, they'd have to be packed up and stacked, and the benches, and about the benches, but the tables, and just a bunch of stuff that we have. Um, so if you're able to do that, and I, I thank you in advance for that, because we will need some help with that. Also, um, by the way, I just want to mention that we have a moving company, all right? So it's not like we have, you guys have to load things on trucks or anything. So you breathe a sigh of relief about that. It'll go into storage until we find a new place, and then it'll come back. And the moving company will take care of that part, putting it on the trucks, putting it in storage, putting it on the trucks, bring it to our new place. And then, of course, from there, we have to reassemble and put things where we need them. Um, one other thing, and that is that we're not going to take everything that we have here. Okay, We don't need it. All right, um, We're not even going to take all of the seats in here. You know, because as you can see, we haven't needed all of the seats in here in a long, long time, maybe ever. Okay, um, so what that means, though, is is that if you want something, all right, next Sunday, all right, we're going to basically mark off the things that we are taking, and then you can go around and say, "Gee, you know, I would, I kind of like that chair, or Gee, I think that'll fit well in my whatever." All right, um, books. You know, you've seen my office, right? We're going to have a lot of books. I'm not taking all those with me. Um, hardly, right? So I'm going to take a few. Like I have boxes today. I'm going to take a few that I really want to keep. But the rest of them, other than the ones that I'm going to destroy, which I'll get to in one second, um, are available for anybody who'd want them. Okay? The reason I said I'm going to destroy some books, I sound like a Puritan or something, is because some of the books that I, that I got, I got expressly for the reason of studying cults and false religions. And I don't want you to have those books, quite frankly. Okay? Um, and other things that are just uh, heretical stuff, and people give you books, and you read them, and like, oh my gosh, this is this is heresy. So, those things will not be available. All right, those books. But other than that, and there are quite a few in there of different sorts. Um, and again, that plan on next Sunday if you'd like to do that. Whew. I feel like I've already given a message this morning, but of course I haven't. So we'll begin with that um, title. Today, from John chapter 4, go, your son lives. Go, your son lives. We'll see what that's all about. Hopefully you have been reading through the Gospel of John and you already know what it's about. 
But if not, this is your chance to see it all and try to try to help you, guide you through it. Some of the things that um, will be helpful to understand as you're reading through it yourself. In any event, please turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, starting in verse 43. John, chapter 4, verse 43. As usual, I will read it, all of it, and then we'll go back and work through it a little bit at a time. That's, that's typically what, especially in the Gospels, because they really are stories and teaching. But with the Gospel of John so far, we've seen a lot of basically stories. What I mean by that is events, you know, Jesus appearing and John the Baptist calling him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then the disciples being formed early on until in chapter 1, and then the miracle at Cana. You see, and then Jesus going to the temple and, and, and knocking over the tables. And then after that, in chapter 3, he meets with Nicodemus. So again and again and again, we've seen um, activity. We've seen Jesus interacting with people. We'll see more of that today. We saw the Samaritan woman in the Samaritan town last week. John chapter 4, verse 43. <laughs> after the two days, now those two days, if you remember, if you were here last week, or as I hope, you've been reading the Gospel of John. Those two days were the two days he spent with the Samaritans. After the Samaritan woman had that interaction with him at the well where she believed in him as the Messiah, and she went back to to the city of Sychar and told them excitedly about Jesus and what he'd said and what he knew. And then the whole, all the men in the town came rushing down and they wanted to meet him too. And they were so excited, they asked him to stay for two days, which remember was an amazing thing because the Jews and the Gentiles were enemies. They wanted nothing to do with each other. And yet Jesus made such an impression on them that they wanted him to stay. And he did. And he, we don't know what he taught or what he said or what he showed in those two days. But whatever it was, they came out of those two days basically telling a woman, you know what? It's no longer just because of what you told us. Now we've seen and we've heard and we believe the words that he says. And then they go on and say he's the savior of the world, which is the only time that phrase occurs in the Gospel of John. Okay. So now after those two days, Jesus went forth from there, Samaria, to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine's first miracle. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him, begging him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was now going down back to Capernaum, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. 
And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was in that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. After staying with the Samaritans in Sychar for two days, Jesus and his disciples resumed their journey to Galilee. The Samaritans had welcomed him. Remember, when he he was in Samaria, they had welcomed him as the prophet, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. In other words, the Samaritans gave Jesus great honor, even though they were not even his countrymen. Even though, as a matter of fact, that they were the traditional enemies of the Jews and didn't believe the things that the Jews believed. Yet, they gave Jesus great honor, even though they were not his countrymen. As a matter of fact, they believed with no miracles. There were any miracles that he performed among the Samaritans. All they needed was his word, and that was sufficient. And that's the best way. By the way, there's no miracles today. So the only way that people are going to believe in Christ is because of the word of God being spoken. The word of God, so important. On the other hand, his own people, the Jews, did not honor him. Certainly not the leaders of the nation. Please turn to John chapter 1, verse 11. John chapter 1, verse 11. We've read this already. It's in chapter 1 in the prologue. Verse 11, he came to his own. His own, remember, are the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. He came to his own, and notice, those who were his own did not receive him. Did not. But as many as received him, and some did, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be a child and adopted son or daughter of the living God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But his own did not receive him. As a matter of fact, the Jewish leaders who represented the nation, the elders and the Pharisees and the high priests and so forth, they persecuted him. They reviled him and ultimately had him put to death. And you know what? Jesus knew that. And he told them one time that that would be a very serious error. For them not to honor him is a very, very serious thing. And he put it the way they would understand. Please go forward to John chapter 5, verse 23. John chapter 5, verse 23. And I just want to set this up by saying, these Jews, the, the leaders especially, the Pharisees especially, especially, did not believe he was the Son of God. However, when he talked about the Father, they did believe that that he was talking about the God, God, Yahweh. And so I want you to notice what Jesus says about people that don't honor him. Notice John 5, 23. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In other words, ultimately... You're not honoring, it's not that you're not honoring me, it's that you're not honoring God, the Father, who sent me. Okay, so that's a very serious thing. Now, we just read um, in, uh, in chapter 4, verse, where is it, 45. 
We just read that the Galileans did receive him. And yet he's going to make that statement a little while from now. Uh, actually, he already said it, that uh, the, 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 a prophet is never welcome in his own country. All right. So the Galileans received him, but he's not welcome in his own country. Later on, he's going to say, you people won't believe unless you see miracles. Not exactly an overwhelming endorsement of the people of Galilee. So what did it mean to receive him? Quite simply, they did not receive him as the Messiah or even a prophet. They didn't receive him as the son of God or the savior of the world. Notice what it says at the, um, at the end of verse 45. I'll read the whole verse. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Oh, I'm sorry. You guys are going to go back. You're in chapter 5. You're going to go back. Chapter 4. Not a very good guide this morning. If we were on Mount Everest, you'd be lost. But anyway, <laughs> I, I would, believe me, I would, you would never find me anywhere near Mount Everest. But it's a whole other story. Especially now. All right. So we'll go back to John 4.45. John 4.45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. By the way, receiving him is not the same as honoring him. It's not the same as believing in him. It's receiving. Hey, come on, come over. We want, we want to see you and all that. But why did they receive him? Notice what it says right after that. Having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. That's why they received him. Because what had he done at Jerusalem at the feast? Remember, he performed miracles and signs. And they were really excited about that. They were excited about the signs and the miracles. So they didn't receive him as the Messiah. They received him as, hey, here's a guy that can perform a miracle for us today. Right? Not the prophet. They didn't even receive him as a prophet. That's why he said a prophet is not welcome in his own country. Because they didn't welcome him as a prophet. You see? They didn't welcome him. They welcomed him as a miracle worker. Having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. Now, there were a lot of Galileans at the feast because it was the feast of Passover. And all the Jewish men were supposed to be in Jerusalem for that feast as well as two others. So there were a lot of Galileans there. They would have seen some of these things that he had performed and then gone back and told the rest of the people. So they were very aware of the fact that he had performed these things in Jerusalem. And they were very impressed by that. Not by who he is, but the miracles. And they wanted him to come on into Galilee and do some more of them. Come on, do us, do some more miracles. We're so excited. You're back in your hometown. Of course you're going to do miracles for us. We're your buddies, you guys. Remember we hung out with you and, and your brothers and we know your mom and all of that stuff, right? They didn't, they didn't think about, hey, you're the Messiah. Let us worship you. Hey, you're the miracle worker. Let us see you do some more. But Jesus, of course, knew exactly what was in their hearts the moment that he came upon them. It was just like what was in the hearts of the people who did observe his signs back in Jerusalem. Let's go to chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 23. John chapter 2, verse 23. You remember. See, sometimes the things that the Lord says, and at first they're kind of puzzling. This is another indication of the same thing. You see, notice in John 2.23, notice how it begins. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. Now, us good evangelicals would say, stop right there, look, he believed, he's born again, and he's justified. And, 
But that's not at all what happened. That's not. See, see, when they believed in him, it's always important to ask the question, as who? Having done what? Or about to do what? It's not just saying, hey, there's a guy named Jesus and I believe he's a great guy or I believe he's a miracle worker. Or he's a great teacher or a rabbi. There are all kinds of ways in which you can believe in, the, in Jesus that have nothing to do with salvation. Does that make sense? That, that was what's going on here. They believed in him, but not as their Messiah, not as their Savior. Let's look at, let's continue. They believed in his name. Why? Same reason the Galileans welcomed him, right? Observing his signs, which, what he, what he, which he was doing. However, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. He, did, he knew that they weren't believing in him as the Son of God or the Messiah or the Christ. He knew that they were believing in his name, meaning, hey, this is a guy who, we, who, who does a lot of miracles and we want to be around him. He knew all men and because he did not need, I love it, anyone to testify concerning man. For he himself knew what was in man. And then Paul would come on in, in Romans and tell us what's in us, right? Nothing good dwells in us. That is our flesh. So Jesus knew that. And he knew that if it, if it were not for the inspiration of the Spirit, if it were not for them believing in who Jesus was and being born again, then he couldn't trust them. He was, they were not of him in that sense. They were not child, children of God. Okay? And if you're not a child of God, I, I offended somebody when I said this before, but if you're not a child of God, guess what? You're somebody else's child, right? We've seen that before. Not a pleasant thing to say, but there's only two kinds of children in the world. Children of God and children of the devil. Right? By the way, we're all born, remember, children of the devil. So it's not as if, ooh, you know, this person is really bad. We were all really bad, okay? But they didn't believe in him as, as the Messiah or the Savior. To, to them, he was simply a miracle worker. Let's go back now to chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 46. And we'll continue. John four forty six. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee. We know we know he came back to Galilee. Now we find out where he went. Where did he go? Cana. That should ring a bell, right? Well, he tells us the bell. Where he made the water wine. In other words, he they, he went back to the location of his first sign, where he made the water wine. At the end of this chapter, he's going to have his second sign. We already read it, so it's not a surprise that he's going to heal a a child, a young man, probably a son, who is at the point of death. In other words, this whole section of the Gospel of John, chapters 2, 3, and 4, begin with a miracle, end with a miracle. Begin with a miracle in Cana, end with a miracle in Cana. Okay. By the way, at that point, when he was coming back, you might think that all the people in Canaan would be celebrating the fact that he was the one who would turn the water into wine. Probably not. And the reason is, is if you recall, there were only a few people who actually witnessed that miracle. Right? Remember, he said, nobody knew, John said, except the servants and his disciples. So it was a rather private miracle. We're going to see the same thing today. That when we, when we see the second miracle that he performs, again, it's going to be a very private one. And that's important to keep in mind. Part of the reason for that is that Jesus, at least now, didn't want to make a big show of his miracles. He would later, 
at least in a couple of cases, raising Lazarus from the dead, for example, his last great sign was very public. Obviously, if you're going to feed 5,000 people on five loaves and two fishes, there's at least 5,000 people who observe the miracle. That's pretty public. But right now, they're very private events. In any event, verse 46. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. This royal official, by the way, is not the same as the centurion whose son, whose slave was dying. Remember, that's in the other, that's in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There was a centurion and his, his slave was dying. And then the Lord also healed him at a distance. However, it was his slave and not his son. Okay, so this is not the same event, not the same person. This person was probably Jewish, whereas we know the centurion was Roman. There was a royal official, official under the king, and not Caesar probably, but probably Herod. There was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. We got Cana, where Jesus is. We got Capernaum, where he came, where the dad was and the son was dying. Okay. Oh, by the way, it's about 20 miles apart, just to give you a sense. Okay. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him. Now, that's just four words. He went to him. But remember, how far away is Cana from Capernaum? 20 miles. So that was, that was a little bit of a journey. You see, you don't see that necessarily. But that was a journey. And he did it in haste. Why? Because his son was dying. Right? He went to him and was imploring him to come down. Come down from the heights of Cana down to the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum is. Heal his son. For he was at the point of death. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where a close person of yours, maybe a child was unexpectedly at the point of death. And you would do anything. And you didn't know what to do. You were probably half out of your mind if you have had that experience. Or even if you thought maybe they were fine, but you thought maybe they were in danger. Even the thought of it would be enough to have people, to have someone really, really upset and maybe freaking out and wanting to get anybody who could help. In any event, he came down to heal his son imploring him to come down and heal his son. For he, the son, was at the point of death. Now, Jesus returned to Cana. By the way, the first time he came to Cana, it was also out of Judea into Cana. Okay, same kind of situation. His disciples might have realized the significance of that. It was the scene of his first miracle. He came down again to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. But again, even though the disciples may have realized the significance, oh, we're back in Cana where Jesus turned the water into wine, it's very doubtful that anybody else did, okay, his disciples. Now, here's a royal official. He lived in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come to Galilee, he raced there as fast as he could to beg him, come down to Capernaum and heal my son. I mentioned this already, but Capernaum is almost 20 miles away from Cana. It would have taken him... Four to five hours to make that trip. Four to five hours at best. All right. If you think about it, uh, how many how many miles can you run at a ten minute mile? I'll tell you how many I can these days. The goose egg, <laughs> right? But even the the pace of walking, which is probably for the most part what he was doing, it's 
probably like 15 minutes more like it, right? So if you do the math on that, 15 minutes, 20 miles, it's five hours. If he's at a jog, maybe four. But it was a long journey, right? And he did it immediately. He just took off as soon as he heard Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was his last hope. He knew of no other way. He was desperate. He, whoever it was that was in Capernaum that was trying to take care of his son couldn't do a thing about it. They probably said, you know what, it's too late. He's got a terrible illness. It's over. But then he hears Jesus came out of Judea into Galilee. And he known about the things that, that Jesus had done in um, Jerusalem. And so he said, maybe, possibly, this is my last hope. I'm going to go. I'm going to go the five-hour trip, the 20 miles, and then beg him to come back with me. Verse 48. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Notice he said to him, he was talking to the royal official, the dad. But notice what he said right after that, unless you people. Now, that's because in the Greek, that word for you is in the plural. See, again, if we were doing the King James, which has some benefits to it, it would have been ye, right? Thou, singular, ye, plural. So you get you know, the difference between, anyway, I've said that too many times. You get it by now. If you haven't, oh well. Um, but it was plural. It meant he was talking to the people, all the people around him. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. By the way, he just blew right past what Jesus had said. Why? Because he was desperate. He had one thing on his mind. It was, a, it was a state of prayer that we might be in now. It really was a prayer. He was imploring, begging, asking with all his heart. Now, at first blush, you might think that Jesus was actually being pretty harsh to this desperate dad. After all, he had just told him. He said, my son is at the point of death. And Jesus, the, the first words out of his mouth was, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. I mean, put yourself for a moment in the, in the, in the position of that dad. And he's saying, well, I, I, I'm asking you to come and heal my son. And he says, you know what, you people, unless you see the signs and miracles, you won't believe. I imagine that his heart may be sunk for a moment there. Because maybe he was saying, well, you know, this, this, this person is tired of people asking him for miracles. So maybe I'm not, I'm not going to get one. All right. But he didn't give up. Notice in verse 49, the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. After all, he must have been half crazy or maybe entirely crazy with the thought of losing his son. So given that, why did Jesus rebuke him? Well, again, for one thing, he wasn't rebuking the royal official. He was rebuking the people of Galilee. Right? A prophet is, ne- is with, never with, with honor in his own country. He was rebuking the people of Galilee. Why? He was very upset. The reason why was they wanted miracles, but they could care less whether Jesus was the Messiah. Matter of fact, when there were times when Jesus was in Galilee and he told them who he was or he quoted from the Old Testament and talked about the Messiah and he says, this, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, they wanted to kill him. All right, so he didn't, he didn't get a uniformly great re- response from the people when he actually revealed who he is. And that, w- that was not at all on their minds, right? We've seen this already. They wanted miracles, but they could care less 
about what those miracles really signified, that Jesus was their Messiah. But the royal official would not have it. He was not dissuaded. He was not put off. He says, I am going to, I heard the rebuke. I don't really like it. I don't know why he's saying it, but I'm going to get right back to what I need, right? He persisted in begging Jesus to come save his son's life. Verse 49, the royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Please turn to Matthew chapter 15, 14, 50, it should be 15. Ignore the slide. It's wrong. By the way, I do my own slides. So there's nobody else to blame, by the way, than yours truly when these kind of things happen. Matthew 15, verse 21. Because what's going on now in the dialogue between Jesus and this royal official is very similar to a dialogue Jesus had with the Syrophoenician woman. Which is really hard to say. So I'm glad that in Matthew's version he says Canaanite. That's a lot easier to pronounce. But it really was a, a, a Gentile from a Syrophoenician woman. You don't have to know that. Matthew 15, verse 21. Jesus went away from there and he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me. Lord, notice, by the way, what what did she call him? Lord, son of David. Son of David was a title for the Messiah. Lord's a title for God, Yahweh. He's saying, you are are exactly what, by the way, John drives at the purpose of his whole gospel. What? These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. This woman already believed. This woman already believed. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. I think all parents have said that at one point, raising their kids. <laughs> Any event. But she really was. My, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. There we have it again. Here's another parent, desperate, and the, and the Lord doesn't say anything to him, right? Ignores him, essentially. And his disciples, they were worse. The disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. Who, are they, who is this woman to shout at us? These grand, great disciples, right? They were very upset. One other time when the, when the Samaritans rejected them, I don't know, this is another story, it's not in the Gospel of John, but John, actually, the, the writer of this Gospel, and his brother turned to Jesus and said, hey, why don't we call on God and have fire come upon these people and burn them all to death? Right? These, are your, these are your great holy disciples, by the way. In any event, his disciples came and implored him, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered, and then he, now he did talk about her situation. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This woman was not of the house of Israel, which makes it all the more astounding that she called him Lord, son of David. Because she wasn't of the house of Israel. And she wasn't a lost sheep anymore either because she believed in him. In any event, he's saying, listen, I'm not here for the Gentiles. I'm not here for the Samaritans. Interesting, in this gospel, because this gospel, the gospel of Matthew, is a gospel that captures what Jesus said and did 
in order for him to present himself as the king of the nation of Israel. Okay, so as far as his interaction and his ministry here, it was to the, it was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he's saying, this is my mission right now. I, I can't really talk to you, woman, because you're not of the house of Israel. But was she dissuaded by that? Did she say, oh, well, I'm, I guess I can't have what I want? Not at all. She came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, you might think at that point, the Lord would say, okay, I'm going to help you, right? If it were you or I, we'd probably be totally, okay, okay, you know, like Jesus talked about prayer, you keep going back, like the judge and the widow, and as soon as the widow keeps hammering on the door, finally the judge says, forget it, I'm going to deal with this woman, right? But then that's not what happened either. Verse 26, he answered the woman and he said, it is not good to take the children's bread, okay, those are the sons of Israel, and throw it to the dogs. Those were the Gentiles. Again, a little bit harsh, right, by the Lord. Here's a desperate woman. Her daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. He's call, she's called him Lord and Son of David, and he calls her a dog. Hmm. But she wasn't dissuaded. Verse 27. But she said, yes, Lord. So in other words, I understand your mission here. However... Even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Magnificent. Magnificent. She was not going to be dissuaded by anything he said. But, he all, but again, she reminds him of the fact that she knew he was her Lord. She called him master. Right, master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. All's well that ends well. There's times when the Lord is going to seem to be harsh with us. It's going to seem to be that we're asking and he's not hearing. Very often, he has a great purpose for that. Sometimes it's to reveal his glory. Like it will be in chapter 11 with Martha and Mary. Who, who, who remember Jesus, went, when he heard that their brother Lazarus had died, he waited a couple of days before he even went there. Again, didn't that seem a little harsh when you think about it? One of your best friends has died, and, you're, and they, they, they said, hey, you know, please come. I'll take my time here. That's, what? You're going to take your time? It's Lazarus. You love Lazarus. It's Martha and Mary. What are you doing, Lord? Finally gets there, and then... They said to him, listen, you'd been here. He wouldn't have died. My brother would still be alive. And he said, yes, but I have, I have done it this way so that you may see the glory of God. That's what happens, you know. Sometimes, as it were, our faith is tested. Sometimes, as it were, we don't understand what the Lord is doing. But mark it down. He is always doing something that in the end will be glorious. It'll bring glory to him and his father, and you'll be blessed out beyond your imagination. That's the way he works. It's good to know that. So that we're not dissuaded, right, the first time when we ask for something and we say, oh, well, right? Don't be dissuaded. Keep asking. Keep asking. This will end in a glorious fashion. So Jesus, remember, uttered his rebuke so the Galileans wouldn't get the wrong idea. See, 
He didn't want to feed the narrative. You heard that expression. That probably wasn't an expression that they used in the first century. But we use it now, right? Feed the narrative. What does that mean? It means people think, in this case, think of Jesus a certain way and that they're in their box. They have a narrative. Jesus, miracles, right? That's their narrative. The last thing he wanted to do was feed that narrative. Why? Because if they didn't get out of their box, they would never see him for who he is, the Messiah. So there's no way that he wanted to let them think for an instant that he was performing miracles to draw a crowd. You see, he won't this time either, as we're going to see in a, in a minute. John 4:50. Jesus uttered his rebuke to the Galileans, even though he knew at the outset that he was going to heal this boy. He knew he was going to heal him, and yet he rebuked the people first. Okay. John 4:50. Go forward to John chapter 4. Jesus said to him, to this dad, this royal official whose son was near death, go, your son lives. You know, Jesus used to say, hey, you know, when you're talking to somebody and they ask you something, if you mean, say yes, if you mean yes. Say no, if you mean no. In other words, people just want you to get to the point. There were times when Jesus was a man of very few words, and they're some of the most powerful words. This is an example of that. Go, your son lives. And yet that was was a revolutionary statement. That meant everything to the Father. Interestingly that it did. It was very interesting that just those four words, and he took off. There's a lot there. I'm going to try to unpack that. Well, we can unpack it right here in verse 50 to begin with. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. Let me ask you something. Let's pretend in our day and age that that your child has an incurable cancer. And you've heard that there's some great doctors in, in, in Texas. All right. And you go there and you say to them, Hey, listen, my, my child is bed bound. He can't move. I want you to please come and, and, and do what you can. And then the doctor simply says, go, your son's fine. Would that, be a, would that be a suitable answer? Would you be really happy at that point? No. So why was, why was this, this, da, this dad happy at this? Why did he run and go back to see his son or walk, whatever he did? Because the man believed the word. Now, why did he believe this word that Jesus spoke? We wouldn't believe that word coming from a doctor, would we? If they just said, go back, your son's fine. I wouldn't believe that. But this this man believed when Jesus simply said, go, your son lives. Why? Because he believed who he was. This was not any ordinary man. This was not just a miracle worker either. This was the son of God. If he says, my son lives, I believe that he's a person of his word. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. Now, what did the father ask of Jesus? What did he ask him? Well, verse 49. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down. Sir, please leave Cana. Come back with me on the 20-mile journey back to Capernaum. Did Jesus do what the man asked him to do. 
No, there's another lesson in prayer. Very often we'll ask something like, you know, I mean, I'm just illustrating. I hope you don't pray this way. But, you know, I, I wanted this brand new Mercedes Benz and I have, a, I have a trip I'm going on in two weeks. I need to get there. Lord probably won't answer that prayer. In other words, you're not going to get the Mercedes Benz. However, he may very well, for example, bring you a friend who can take you there. You see, there's a, see, there's a, there's a goal that we have in mind, a need that we have, but very often we're not really clear about how to ask directly. Okay, Same thing here. The Lord didn't do what he asked him to. He didn't race with him back to Capernaum. He stayed in Cana. Why? Well, one of the reasons why, remember, he says, to, he says, he begins by saying, a prophet is never without honor except in his own country. And then he said to the crowd, unless you see miracles, you simply won't believe. What, what would have happened if he went back to Capernaum and did the miracle right there? What do you think would have happened? First of all, do you think he'd be alone going back? No. Why? Because now the people that are looking for a miracle are excited. Hey, let's take the journey. I know it's far away, but let's go back and see. I want to see. I want to see Jesus perform another miracle. I want to see how he does it. Does he lift up his hands? Does he poke the guy in the belly? What does he do? Right? Well, Jesus wanted none of that. He didn't want any of that. He, the, the, he did not want to attract a big crowd at all because that crowd would only have wanted to see him perform another miracle. So the issue now was, he just says, go, your son lives. Would this dad take Jesus at his word? Let me turn, yes, right? Let me turn this around. Do you take Jesus at his word? In other words, do we need all the time to have certain signs and indications? And you know how we go. And it's funny, you know, you're like, you, you ask the Lord to get you a trip around the world. I'm just illustrating. I hope you don't ask him for that. And then that afternoon, you see a commercial for the place you want to go to. And you say to your partner, it's a sign. He wants me to go to Hawaii. Right? We do that. Come on now. We do that. I'm sorry we do. He doesn't want that. He simply wants to, he wants you to take him at his word. And in his word, he's never going to talk about Hawaii or Mercedes Benz. He's always going to talk about all things are working together for good. That's how he's going to put it. And he wants you to take him at his word. Right? He says that I will never leave you or forsake you. He wants you to take him at his word. He says neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities. Or I forget all of them now because I'm getting old or height, or depth, or any created thing will ever come between you and his love. Do you need to see all that happen before you believe? Do you actually be, have to be at the point of death before you believe that his love will never leave you? I hope not. I hope you simply take him at his word. That's what this man did. He believed that this person would heal him. And at this point, remember... He had not seen the miracle yet. See, see, there's a lot of miracles in the Gospel of John. And at the end of it, John actually says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But that's us who have never seen, we never saw those miracles. We weren't in Galilee in the first century, right? We're We're now reading, we're taking God at his word. So it's the same principle now. 
He didn't want people to just believe in him because they saw the miracles. But he, this, this dad, believed that Jesus would keep his word, and he simply believed the word that Jesus spoke to him without a miracle. He believed that this person, Jesus, would do exactly what he promised he'd do because this man knew exactly who he was. And by the way, that's the whole purpose of miracles. It's the, whole, the whole purpose of miracles is to get you to, to wake up and to say, maybe this, is the pers- this person is who he says he is. That's it. Okay, so in a sense, even without the miracle, the miracle that he would perform already achieved the goal of having this person believe in him. All right. That belief was rewarded. His confidence was rewarded. Look at John chapter 4, verse 51. So again, here's the picture. He's in Cana, the dad with Jesus. Ask him to come doesn't come, says, go, your son lives. And he went. By the way, it's interesting. We're going to see in a moment that the, it, was, it was literally precisely 24 hours between when Jesus said, go, your son lives, and when he heard the news. Now, what does that tell you? Well, you may, this is what it tells me. It tells me that this father was so convinced that his son had been healed, that this time on the trip back, he was going to take his good, sweet time. That's faith. That's faith. As he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Now put yourself in the position of these slaves, just for a moment. The master's son is near death. He's, he's screaming down the path to get to Jesus so that he will come back and heal him. They see him on the horizon, okay? And they realize Jesus isn't with him, but they also know what, is, what has happened a day earlier. And they have this amazing news. Your son is, is well. And you would think that the father would say, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Jesus didn't come with me, but wow, my kid got better anyway. And instead, what does he say? Well, you know, what time did it happen? And they must have been really confused and surprised by that inquiry. What time did it happen? What what difference does that make? Your son is living. There's only one reason why this man would have asked what time it happened. And it was because he was sure that his son had been healed. Not because it just got better but because he took the word that Jesus spoke and he actually believed that that word itself, spoken 20 miles away, was enough to heal his son. That's why. In other words, this was not a coincidence. And he knew that the time would confirm it. He already believed it, but he knew the time would be the last confirmation. Jesus healed this boy from a distance, which is pretty miraculous when you think about it. 20 miles away. He did it with a word. He did it at the exact moment that he had spoken the words, go, your son lives. Exact moment. It's kind of, to me, it's kind of reminiscent, if you will, that's not the right word, but when the whole universe was created, how was it created? 
Did Jesus get a permit from the universal government? And then he gathered together all the materials and then took them a thousand years or like some people think millions of years. Well, the Bible says what? He spoke and it came to be. That's power. And the same power raised Jesus from the dead. And the same power is, is, is working in us. Now, if that isn't enough for you to go out victorious or to wake up in the morning, I really don't know what is. That's power. So that means every word that comes out of his mouth is power. Now, don't get silly with me. This isn't name it and claim it. But it just shows you that there's a power in God's word that eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard. It's never even entered into our hearts the things that he will do with that power. He will do it, by the way. Doesn't need our help. Isn't going to do it because we ask a certain way or, you know, he's going to do it because of who he is. Because he wants, he wants to be glorified. How's that? He wants to be, he wants to know people uh, have, 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 people, he wants people to know his power. He wants people to know that he's a gracious God and that he, free, he gives freely. He wants us to know. So again, the son was living. He inquired the hour. Jesus healed from a distance and he healed at the exact moment that he had spoken those words, go, your son lives. Look at verse 53. So the father knew that it was in that hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. What a validation that was. Can you imagine that? Not only was his son healed, but he's looking back now at the man who told him to come back, and they told him that his son lives. And he realizes at the very moment that he said those words, my son came back from the dead, as it were. Imagine how your life would change forever. If that happened. So yesterday at the seventh hour, his fever left him. And the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed, and notice the next part, and his whole household. So not only was he saved, his whole household now was. Let's think about this faith of this man. It started out with him just knowing the reputation. This is somebody that could help me. And then he heard him say, go, your son lives. And he took him at his word. That was great faith. And then finally he saw his glory. And then that was even more faith. Only this time it was the Lord showing his glory. As always, though, in him responding to it. See, the Lord's always looking out for, after us and wanting us to believe in him. Now, we, we tend to kind of focus on the salvation but that's true every day of our lives, right? He wants us to take anything that we have that's a struggle, that's anxiety-provoking, or even some good things. He wants us always to orient to him, to see who he is in all of this, to believe his words once again. That's what he's looking for. After all, he's our dad. He's our dad. And if there's one thing that a father loves, it's when the children take him at his word. Nothing like that. Lining up with his word just because dad said it. Of course, many dads aren't worthy of that, which is a whole other issue. But in the best of circumstances, there couldn't be any better way for children to respond to their dad. 
And then he soars. So in other words, it all came down to believing. Believing in Christ. I want to talk about believing just for a couple of minutes now. The Greek word here is pistuo. Not pistachio, pistuo. And this word is a very big word in the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, I want you to think, it appears 84 times. 84 times. That's, that's an average of four times a chapter. Okay? They're, because they're clumped together, it doesn't really lay out exactly like that. 84 times. You know, it's funny, I say that because there are times when certain people, certain theologians and scholars and pastors will take a verse and, and what is said there appears just once. And they'll make a whole theology out of it. And here we have something that's said 84 times just in the Gospel of John. And they're always trying to qualify it. Well, it kind of means that. But really, let's, let's talk about a different kind of belief. And you know, over here, it said repent. And all that nonsense. 84 times, simply believe. Not only that, but nearly all of them, 77 out of 84, speak of believing or not believing, in Christ or the Father who sent him. In other words, that's the issue, right? And then 16 verses directly speak about believing in Christ or his Father for salvation. 16 times. Salvation, eternal life, is the favorite expression. But other times, you'll never be condemned. You'll receive the Spirit. You'll never hunger or thirst. You'll not abide in the darkness any longer. 16 times. Believe in the Lord and you will be saved. Let that soak in just for a minute. Imagine if somebody told you 16 times something. Said, trust me, okay? I'm going to give you this, this present. And then a little while later, trust me, I'm going to give you this present. Trust me. Okay, Dad, I understand. You don't have to tell me 10 times. We say 10 times. Well, he told us 16 times in the Gospel of John. Now, I have a question for you. I want you to guess the following. How many verses in John talk about repenting or feeling sorry for their sins or admitting that they're sinners or even giving their lives to Jesus? But let me say it just for a second, that last one. He never asks for that. Think about it. When, when he performed the miracle at Cana, he didn't say to the, to the bridegroom, and now you must follow me, commit your life to me. He didn't say it to the Samaritan woman. He didn't say it to the people in the village. He didn't say it to this man today. He never said that. Why? Because we wanted one thing. What? Thank you. Believe. That's all he wanted. So guess how many verses, again, I'll ask the question again. How many verses in John talk about repenting, feeling sorry for sins, admitting that they're a sinner, or giving their lives to Jesus? Anybody want to guess how many times? Zippo. Exactly. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Can't say that anymore. Because it's not politically correct. Plus, it's a little weird for a guy that has lung cancer telling everybody to go smoke like crazy. But in any event, zero times. Not once. Let that sink in. This is the gospel where he's revealed as the son of God. This is the evangelistic gospel. It's the one that we draw from in order to preach the gospel about who Jesus is. And how many times we should tell people they should repent? Zero. Or give their lives to Jesus? Zero. Or admit they're a sinner? Zero. Let that sink in for a minute. The next time 
you swayed maybe just to add that stuff in there. Simply believe. But believe who? In Jesus and his Father. Why? Because he's the Savior of the world. He's God's only Son. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. So, 77 times believe in Christ, zero times any of that other stuff. That were a football game. Man, 77 to nothing. By the way, none of the other Gospels say anything about repenting or confessing one's sins in order to receive eternal life either. None talk about eternal life and say, if you confess your sins, you'll have eternal life. If you repent, you'll have eternal life. Now, we could do a whole other study on those few places where that's there, but you, but you, have to, you don't have to. Go check it for yourself. None of them talk about eternal life. Okay. John four fifty four. This is again a second sign. Notice he numbers. The first one in Cana, he says that's number one. The second one, number two. He doesn't do that anymore. I mean, uh, there are seven great sign miracles that John features in his gospel. But he only numbers the first two. And that's kind of interesting as well. I don't know exactly what that means, but I think it's interesting. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So let's recap. Chapter 2 began in Galilee. That's where Jesus performed the beginning of signs, turning the water into wine, and his disciples believed in him. Chapter 4 ends in Cana of Galilee. Jesus performed a second sign when he left Judea and came to Galilee, here in Cana once again. Who believed in him? Does it say all the Galileans believed in him? No. Does it say everybody in Capernaum believed in him? No. Who does it say? The dad and his family. Right? That's it. That's the way Jesus wanted it. That's why he healed him at a distance. But he healed him immediately. Why? Because he was interested in these people that he wanted to believe in him for who he is. He didn't want everybody. Think about it. Nobody, I mean, sure, people in Capernaum would have been celebrating the fact that this son who looked dead was alive. But they wouldn't connect that with Jesus. Why? He was 20 miles away when it happened. He didn't want everybody to see it. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So again, these two miracles were private. Only a few people witnessed them. We witness them now, why? If we believe the word of God in John's gospel. The circumstances of these two were very different. The first one was at a wedding. The second one was with a dying boy. Couldn't be more different than that. One was a festive occasion. The other was heartbreaking. Jesus was at the scene on the first one. He was at the wedding. He instructed the servants to fill the uh, watering pots with water. He was there, okay? He was miles away from the second one. Miles away. What did they have in common? Both miracles that Jesus performed happened just in time to prevent a tragedy. Yeah, the first one was, I mean, it's relative, right? But the tragedy would have been that they ran out of wine and that the groom would have been embarrassed. And so that is a tragedy. Of course, it pales in comparison to what awaits us at the end of chapter 4, 
which was a boy dying. Okay, it's prevented tragedy. In both places, however, people were desperate. Both of them, whether the bridegroom or the royal official, had a great need, but not only that, it seemed impossible to meet that need. Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And people needed to learn that lesson. And boy, did they ever. They have no wine. Come down before my child dies. Who can do it? Who can meet their needs? Nobody. There was no liquor stores that were open on the day of the wedding. They couldn't do it. There was nobody waiting with enough wine to just run into the rescue. Who could meet their needs? When, the, when that son was near death and the father was, was five hours away and nobody could heal him, who could meet his need? Oh, it's a simple answer. Only the Christ, the Son of God, can. And that, after all, is the whole message. It's the whole message of the Gospel of John. You know, come to me, Jesus said in another Gospel, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, only the Christ, the Son of God, could take care of those most desperate needs that we have. There's nothing more desperate, whether people understand it or not, than being dead in our trespasses and sins. Who can meet that need? Only Christ, the Son of God. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 25. This will be our last verse. I'm just going to read it. However, the Christ, the Son of God, I want you to think about that. The Christ, the Messiah, the promised King of Israel. The Son of God, the Lord, God himself. And the power that he has. Isaiah 25. 6 to 8, starting in verse 6. There's some advantages to be studying another book at the same time, right? You get to remember stuff in the book of Isaiah that just fits really well. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. The Lord of hosts, who? The Lord, the Lord of hosts, will prepare a lavish banquet like the wedding feast, for all peoples on this mountain. Only this banquet will be for everybody who's in the kingdom. A banquet of aged wine. I'm sure it was the best wine, we know it was, that Jesus made out of that water. Aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Check, wedding feast of Canaan. Let's keep going. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. Check. Only now it won't be one boy. It'll be everybody. It won't be one wedding. It will be the whole world at a celebration, all who are in the kingdom. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. But for the same reason, Go, your son lives, for the Lord has spoken. And it's that simple. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you today for reviving our hope, understanding how amazing it is that your word glorifies you and how it's as simple as believing, taking you at your word. Help us to take you at your word no matter what. No matter what we're facing as a people, as individuals, as a church, as a nation, help us to just take you at your word. We know that we can then rest 
And just like the father took his time going back after he'd taken your, you, your son at his word, we can have the same kind of life, relaxed. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. And now I would like the ushers to come forward and please pass out the communion elements. Go. Your son lives. Jesus brought that boy from death to life. You want to know something? He does the same thing for whoever believes in him. In John 5, 24, the Lord said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out, has passed out of death into life. Romans 5, 8 to 10, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now that's life. And he accomplished this how? By his own death and his resurrection from the dead. From death to life. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who died and rose again on their behalf. Knowing, Peter writes, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So that your faith and hope are in God. We have been brought from death to life. Who have, who have, everyone who believes in Christ has been brought already from death to life. You have eternal life. You will never come into judgment. Why? Because Jesus died for you and he rose from the dead. It's that simple. And that's what we bring to mind every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a simple enough thing, but there's no end to how profound those, those simple things really are. The death of Christ. We could have the Lord's Supper from now for a thousand of years and we would still be able to point out another facet of the death of Christ. Same thing with his resurrection, the things that were accomplished. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink it together.
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May it be soon. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to stop and reflect on the magnificence of your plan for lost sinners, that you had your son die and you raise him from the dead. Whoever simply believes in him, you will, have, you will give eternal life in an instant, in the same instant that it took the word of God to travel those 20 miles and heal that son. Father, we ask you today, too, that you would watch over and guide us as we leave this current building and venture forth and find a new building and then reside there. We pray, Father, in the meantime, that you would keep us all together. We pray most especially, Father, for the lost this morning, that they may hear the gospel, the good news, that Jesus Christ died for their sins, was buried, and was raised from the dead on the third day, and that they may understand that it's simply a matter of believing that good news. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now, the message in reverse. I'm doing that because I want to show you once again the email and kind of talk through it, give you a kind of a second run through some of the uh, announcements I made about the closing on the building. Wow, I had a lot of slides today. Look at that. My goodness. Ah. Da. So again, let me recap what I told you at the beginning, that uh, this, we will close on this building on the 14th of, of June. Okay, That's not this Monday, but the following one. That means our, la- our last service here in this building is next Sunday. After that, we will be on Skype until we find a new place, Okay, which hopefully will be soon as well. If you have any places that you think would be suitable for us, that you come across or that you know about, please send us an email at info at lbible.org. Already had one um, suggestion this morning that we're going to be looking into. So, so please do that. Again, I'm not guaranteeing anything. Okay, I'm not saying if you tell us, we will go. All right? But I am saying that we need, we need options right now. Okay? The things that we've looked at so far, have just um, either, they, either they've fallen through or they just actually didn't meet our needs. So please, and please keep that in prayer, obviously, as well. Um, we'll, we'll be uh, having one month after the closing again to move. The moving company will actually do the move, but we're going to need some help packing up. And next Sunday, there'll be an opportunity for you to take some items, books, furniture, and so forth, once we've marked the things that we'll be taking with us. So if you'd like to do that, remember it's next Sunday. This Thursday, as always, we have our Bible study on Skype at 6.30. This would be a good week for everybody to to be with us, just as a protest run, because that's where we're going to be until we find a new building. Hopefully not for long, okay? But so please, please, you know, I would suggest that everybody who possibly can get on Skype on Thursday to make sure you can get in okay and can hear and all those good things, okay? All right, let's close. Father, thank you again today for the excitement of the life that you have for us, the the fact that we can rest assured that you will come through for us. We ask you to come through for us in this area of finding a new place and keeping everybody together. 
We also ask, Father, for you to come through for every one of us who's in any kind of need that only you can fill. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. And with that, you're dismissed. And uh, we will see you next Sunday for the, the final act here in this building anyway.